0: say it loud network presents corner table talk
1: no what's happening brad what's What's going going on on, brother man you know uh staying cautious trying to stay out of everybody's way stay safe
0: masking up i hope
1: yeah masking up but then still trying to enjoy myself being in is okay this stays in our lives i don't know if we were 23 how we'd feel, but this stage, it didn't really change too much. <laughs>
0: that, that's the conversation we need to have with our sons. I know they're taking some chances, so but hey, man, thank you so much for uh for agreeing to do this. And uh, some people might be wondering, well, what does you know, this is a restaurant hospitality podcast. You know, what does Norm Nixon have to do with restaurants and hospitality? We're going to get into that for sure. I have a very long uh history with Norm dating back to the 70s in college, but uh. For those of you that don't know who my my famous guest is here, two-time NBA champion, two-time all-star, first-team rookie, all-star, standout, amazing player at Duquesne, just an all-around incredible guy, celebrity, friend of the stars, friends of athletes, Norm Dixon, thank you for joining Corner Table Talk. Appreciate it.
1: (laughs) Hey, Brad, I want to meet that guy you were just talking about. Is he on with us?
0: <laughs> you don't know Is he him. on the
1: phone? Is he on the yeah. phone? <laughs> Man, tell yeah. him I said hello. No, <laughs> no, nah, nah, it's good, Brad. I mean, like he said, it's a hospitality show, but – you're, you always remind me that our first meeting was in the gym when you were a youngster. Well, so I didn't yeah, you don't remember that. me, but I remember you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I sat a lot. Of, I watched a lot of that game from the bench, but uh, Norm was was amazing in college and uh, my, my team, University of Massachusetts, we played against Norm when he was at, uh, at Duquesne University. So um, I actually go back to um, after that, Norm and I reconnected in New York in 1986 when Debbie was performing in Sweet Charity on on Broadway, a Bob Fosse production. It was an amazing play. And uh, Norm used to come by and hang out at the re- restaurant that I had opened at that time called Memphis. We actually I don't know if you remember, Norm, but we ended up having the close a night party for Sweet Charity at, at Memphis. You remember that?
1: Oh, I remember all that. I think I was just talking to a couple of our mutual friends and we—I I was telling them that I used to walk from there to uh, meet Debbie at the theater with Vivian on my shoulders. She was uh-huh. a baby. And we stop in Memphis and sit at the bar. <laughs>
0: That's right. We had that long bar. Yep. you guys. She
1: get us Shirley Temple, and I was staying on Seventy Second Street. I was talking about the old building. Uh Ed Bradley was my neighbor. You know, so he used to come into Memphis. So Memphis was my kind of go to spot. Yeah, well, it was that great my go-to to have spot. you. And,
0: and you guys, you know, when when you started coming around, we had just opened Memphis and. Um, you know, the, the association with you and Debbie led to catering gigs for Eddie Murphy at Eddie's house, Bubble Hill in Inglewood Cliffs. And then at the Cosby show, we, we started doing catering gigs for them. So you guys were, were really, really good to me, you know, from, from going back that far. So. I'm going to start off with what I call uh, short order questions. Short order is kind of restaurant terminology for, you know, for fast food. But I'm going to hit you with a couple of questions, Norm, get you a quick response, and and uh, we're going to roll. So first question, favorite meal? Oh,
1: man, my favorite meal if you want to just get me to something in the house, man, give me some cabbage and some hot cornbread.
0: <laughs>
1: if you she want to take you, just, just some cabbage, you know, Debbie, my mom, my grandma, if you want to take me back to one of those, it's, it's actually that kind of a meal, man. I That's love it. Hot baby. water cornbread with some greens and some fruit cut tomatoes, man. It's a healthy, and it's like, I love that.
0: Oh, man. My right,
1: God so tons of dishes, but I love that one. Well, that's a good one.
0: All right, so how about most romantic place you and Debbie have ever dined?
1: I think for us, uh you know, you gotta go back you got to go back to like Positano. Positano. Mm-hmm. That that Amalfi coast is just so beautiful, man. It's know, so beautiful sitting there. Spot. It's a different place and uh you know it, it those kind of dinners there, you, you know, you when you first do it, you don't know anybody. So you are really just yourselves together, enjoying the atmosphere, the scene, you know, it's building the side of the hill, the Mediterranean, man, it's just so beautiful there. So I I would have to say that is my
0: favorite. I love that, man. And I'm going to come back to Italy because I know that's, that's been a special place for you. Next question. Do you eat before or after your morning workout? After. Norm is a religious workout. Yeah. Uh, We used to, Run around the track at UCLA together every morning. You have a team <laughs> of cats out there from James Ingram to be a bunch of us, right, Norm?
1: Yeah, man. God, they're putting it down, man. Bringing the sun up in the morning. Every day. Bringing the sun up.
0: Yep. All right. So, next question. Past or present, person you would most like to have a drink with?
1: Past or present?
0: Yep. Someone who's either still with us or, or, or gone.
1: Well, Brad, you know, it, it becomes no, 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 uh, I'm almost ready to cry now, man. It'll be my mom. Come on, man. Uh, you, know, you know, we were mama's boys. Yeah, man. You know, to yeah. have her right here sit here uh, uh, in my backyard, you know, we have grandbabies now Even with me, mm-hmm. sitting out with them having an opportunity. So, you know, that trumps Everything, everything, yeah. everything. I mean, you gonna be like me? You gonna start crying? Stop, stop! Man. stop man. <laughs> I mean, I'm tearing up. <laughs> hey, look, I'm telling you, man. When you asked me, I thought about it. I mean, I mean, tears mm. started coming to my eyes, man.
0: Yeah, man. You know, you came to my uh, the little brunch that I had for twenty of us that uh, honored my mom, man. And yeah, you know, to your point, um, you know, I don't know if we're ever the same after after we Never. lose lose our moms, Never. man.
1: I'll share this with you. One of my friends told me this, um, he had lost his mother. Actually one of my friends from Macon, Georgia was my college roommate, his mom died. We was really young. And, um, and people just, Oh man, I know how you feel. He used to come back in the room and say, man, they can all say that, man, you don't know how you feel till you lose your mom. But I, I get tired of hearing people say that. And so for you and I, you know, when you have you, you like you say, you're never the same. It changes, in particular, like I said, I was a mama's boy like you. I know you yeah. were to mama. You know, I experienced you and your mom, and I was a mama's boy as well. So there is yeah. nothing drops down. But we better move on, man, before all we right. start crying. Yeah, man, I know. We got man, to clean you know, we're supposed to be after <laughs> <by church>. these man. <laughs> did you hear, Brad's yet. First yeah. show, yeah. they're up in there Here
0: crying. You Norman, know, Brad, crying, <laughs> all on the internet. Um, all right. So here we go. Now, now I, I know it's not possible to embarrass you, but I'm still going to ask you this. So, last uh, last year, in front of, you know, probably a thousand or so people like <laughs> in, in Beverly Hills, and a big gal for Debbie Allen Dance Academy, Norm, in front of friends, family, associates, investors, philanthropists, got up on stage and sang, in key, Golden That's Lady. Great. That's
1: As a Stevie key Wonder. word, pardon the pun. But go ahead,
0: <laughs> Golden Lady Stevie Wonder's Golden Lady. So my question is, Norm, what's the follow up song? What's next?
1: Oh, man. hey Brad, you, you know, all right. So I, I just, you have to bear with me for a moment. After that, I went and did it at the Apollo. <laughs> I, what? I, I went and sang at the Apollo for for the big, the, the, a, a big dinner. I went and sang a couple of songs, right? So my romance. So people keep asking me to do it again. I say I retired. I played the Annenberg. Then I played Apollo. I don't, I don't perform no more. So I technically have always been a closet guy, closet guy, like playing around with James. Even from Georgia days, you remember I might get in and play the piano sometimes with those guys. And, uh, I promised James that James was another good friend. I said James, you know one day i'm a i am i will step out of the living room and go do something and have some fun to be able to do it. I didn't take myself serious, but it's not as bad as shooting a free throw in a world championship game. I say hey, if I mess up, I mess up, but if I can stay in key because my bar was so low, all you guys thought I was James because I didn't crack, <laughs> but my <laughs> bar was so low, I was brilliant. <laughs> you see not, was not so many low.
0: people not many people <laughs> have the comparison to me to a free throw in a championship game in terms of nerves and comparing it to that moment. Only you, brother. But, uh, you know, our friend John McClain gets mad when you when you call yourself a singer because he, he already knows how talented you are. And that's just now you're crossing over into music. And that's his domain. Oh,
1: he talks all the time. He oh, said, yeah. I can't believe it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, Norm, I want to I want to switch up a little bit here. Thank you for those for those quick answers. So I want to go back to uh, to your hometown of of Macon, Georgia. And just kind of get a little a little sense from you of some of your really earliest food memories growing up. What was food like around the Nixon household? Maybe when you when did the family ever go out to eat? What was your first experience dining out? But give me a little give me a little Macon flavor from from the Nixon perspective.
1: Uh, well, from my perspective, I grew up in uh, I grew up, like you said, Macon, Georgia. And and at that time it was still pretty much segregated. I didn't go to school with a white person until I was in the 10th grade, went to all black schools. But I think when you're growing up in that, you don't really think about it because I was with all my friends, you know, we've been ventured far outside the neighborhoods. My mother dealt with her. I remember her going in back doors. So the food at that time, going out wasn't really a choice. You might have one spot you might go to every now and then, but the food was cooked in your homes. Like I grew up with my grandmother, my mother, my great aunts, aunts in the country, you know, my grandmother's siblings because I grew up more of my mother's side of the family. So, you know, those women go in the kitchen, man. And it was like it was on. So all from fried chicken, pork chops, greens, macaroni, cheese, fresh baked cakes, fresh cornbread. They made the wine. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: now so, was that, was that happening regularly or was it? That happened probably or? until
1: I got up. Well, probably until I was maybe 13, 14, because we always went out to the country to visit my aunts and they always cooked after church. You always had a big meeting. So those are my younger years. When I got old enough to start going to uh, junior high school, it was just more in the home. My grandmother Mm -hmm. cooked, my aunts cooked. They still always cooked at the church for people, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they always fed people, go up there breakfast. Mm -hmm. So my favorite meals started becoming like um, fresh salmon cake with biscuits. My mother used to make that like salmon cakes with biscuits and syrup. Mm -hmm. To the day she died, when I hit the Atlanta airport because it was one hour from the airport. i called call my mom, I'm in the car, I'm on my way home. When I walked in the door, those salmon cakes and biscuits, that's all I wanted. I eat about six biscuits, five or six salmon cakes.
0: <laughs> or mom knew how to do that, huh?
1: Oh, man. come on, man, come on. So my memories were more uh, the meals cooked inside of the home. I mean, I think okay. uh, when I went away to college, and got into the NBA, started traveling everywhere, mm-hmm. eating different kinds of food. And uh, mm-hmm. so that developed more uh, uh, from college forward.
0: OK, so, yeah, I wanted to I wanted to touch on next your experience at Duquesne. I know Pittsburgh has a very rich uh, African-American community. I know, you know, our friend Denzel is is now in charge of the August Wilson, all, all of his plays. Um, do you have memories, food memories, Norm, of, of Pittsburgh at all and Duquesne? Were there restaurants that were popular anything black or well, that that you recall come, from back
1: come, then? come on, Brad. You know we didn't go to restaurants. <laughs> 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 I, I went to, uh, the, I, I will tell you this. I started experiencing like Italian food. There was a large Italian population there. So I went to some great Italian restaurants and some of the Italians that lived there. I played mm-hmm. with a lot of Polish guys. So, you know, uh, you started eating. Polish food, that Polish sausage, those mm-hmm. meals. So I went to some of those restaurants actually in their homes, some of the restaurants, Italian people in their homes. Cause a lot of those guys was first generation here. So you talking dandelions, salads out of the yard, fresh this. So Polish restaurants, Italian restaurants, and then starting to, uh, and there were a couple of, uh, Southern restaurants on the Hill, but I had an aunt that lived there. You know, my father's Oldest sister lived in Pittsburgh. So again, she had a garden with greens, cabbage, tomatoes. So when I really got ready to eat, I went to her house and she put it down. I used to take my teens there, man. We'd be sleep on the floor, you know, after we eat all that food and she could cook. So I came from a family of, uh, uh, and my father can cook. So I came from a family of people that could really cook, like my mom, my father, all of them to cook. So they cooked. It, it must
0: be interesting to you having grown up around farming and, and seeing fresh ingredients, you, you know, know, on the table as just kind of a regular occurrence, to see a restaurant trend become farm to table as if, you know, that was that was something new. But you just you grew up that way.
1: Yeah, you yeah, you you grew you grew up with that. You know, they picked the greens out of the yard, the cabbages out of the yard, the tomatoes and boom. And you know, as we got older, you started buying buying stuff from uh from farmers market, because they always have a farmer's market. But you know, we could get in the car, we could just drive to our relative's house. You know. But when that generation got uh um like I think my mother's generation, after that generation, they farmed less and less. Like my mother's generation, her first cousins and all of them, they still had those farms, man. You could go out there, you could go get fresh uh, fresh food or they had gardens. When they moved into town, they had big gardens, you know? Grew everything, peppers and the tomatoes and the greens and the palm trees. And so it was all of that kind of stuff around you. Then everything urbanized a lot. Family farms were gone, so it it changed. I mean, even Macon's different now. When I go back, it's a different place. How so, Noah? Well, it's a different place because uh, it's more of a city. All the problems you have in major cities you have on a different scale, like gangs, you have those things. The, the, uh, the homicide race kind of in the communities I grew up in is different. You know, uh, so the same problems that plague major cities plague that place as well. You know, yeah. when I left there, it was a little different. You know, we had high school. We all went to high school. Everybody tried to graduate from high school. You know, the graduation rate dropped. This dropped socially. I guess, uh, it hasn't progressed a whole lot.
0: You know, well, you know, what's was interesting, um, you know, obviously prominent people like yourself, you know, having moved away from Macon, but there's there's something happening now, a trend happening now, a reverse migration, where a lot of prominent African-Americans, I know the New York Times columnist Charles Blow just wrote a, a piece a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times where he's leaving New York City to move back to Georgia And um, just how how that's become a trend where, you know, a lot of folks that had moved to northern cities are looking to kind of reestablish their roots in the south and and for various reasons. So I I wonder what impact that might have on some of the conditions that that you just mentioned.
1: Well, what I'll say that happened in most of the major cities, because at one time, Brad, 80, 85 percent of African-Americans lived in the southeastern part of the United States and then everybody migrated. You know, migrated to different places, New York, to Detroit, to Chicago, to New Orleans, to move to California. So there, there's a, a lot of history about the black migration. What I'm finding is a lot of people went to the big cities because a lot of my friends who went to college and never went back. And I don't think they ever go back to Macon. They'll go back to Atlanta. They go into Birmingham. They go into Charlotte. They go into all these cities because they have, a, a first of all, a cost of living. I mean, you can go spend a third of what you spend here and have a beautiful home in a beautiful area. You know, so the quality of life, the quality of life back there is a lot different in major city. Not as much of the hustle and bustle. So you got to give and take in that situation. You might not have as much theater as New York, but you're going to have a nice house, nice schools, nice playgrounds, nice place to go. So a lot of people are going back in the smaller towns. They don't go back to the smaller towns, like they don't go back to Maker because of the job market. Now you can go get a beautiful home. But you go to Charlotte, Atlanta, you're going to have, I'm not trying to say those places are country, but culturally there's just more to do. You're going to have museums, you're going to have theaters, you're going to have all these things that provide in those big cities. So people have a tendency to go to the cities, and a lot of people are going back. That's the show. Yeah, yeah.
0: it would be interesting to see, you know, the impact on those places as, as that trend unfolds. So, Norm, I want to jump, uh, take a big step forward. You're 22 years old, first-round draft pick, LA Lakers, Los Angeles, from Pittsburgh to LA, you hit the ground, you're playing in the forum, you're, you're starring on a, on what becomes the Showtime Lakers. Tell me a little bit, man, about what that, what that felt like as a 22 year old to land in LA with your set of experiences and your eyes wide open. What, what did that, what what, did, what was that experience like? What did that feel like?
1: Well, um, I'll, I'll laugh about this. I was 21, Brad. <laughs> I was one of those young guys. I turned 20. No, I'll just mess with you. You know, in, in, in hindsight, when I talk about my experience at Duquesne, Duquesne got me ready for the NBA. You know, my experience there got me ready for the NBA. As you say, you know, I went to a small college and, you know, I knew I could play. So I always had a chip on my shoulders who was playing. So I wasn't even thinking about L.A. I was coming out here to take a starting job. It's just like... When I went to Duquesne, if I came and played against you guys in New York, they talk about a New York guard before they talk about me. So I always had a chip on my shoulder. I always thought I was just as good at everybody else playing. So when I got here, coming from a small uh, school and being like a third round pick, my whole focus was coming out here to get me a starring job. And in sports, and I'll tell you, most guys that say this, and I'm saying it's not, a, it's, it's not a, a um, cocky thing. It's like. It's the natural progression in what we're trying to do. You go to college and you go to college and man, I'm going to start. And if you come into pros, I don't care you say, man, I'm going to take me a job. I'm going to get me a job. I'm going to start. I don't care. You know, they drafted a guard ahead of me in my same position. I didn't even think about him. You know, I wasn't worried about him because I was thinking beyond that. Mm-hmm. You know, some from a sports perspective, that's what it was. Now, from awe inspiring, when I walked in, it's like, man, I'm playing with Kareem. I do bar. I looked over there. So that part, you know, the basketball, I was like, I, I'm, I'm going to handle this. But on the other part, you know, it's just like, oh, man, you know, I left Pittsburgh, man. I landed out here. Everything was green and flowers. and It was November. <laughs>
0: where, did, where did you first live, Norm? You
1: know. Uh, uh we all lived in Fox Hills. Fox Hills at that time was probably one of the most beautiful apartment complexes in the country. It was a it was stuff you had never seen before. You know, you walked out, they had a swimming pool, they had the tennis courts. You know, so all of us stayed around, kind of in that area, we could get apartments, you know, mold around it. You didn't see that kind of a complex anywhere. And it's still beautiful today, but at that time it was brand new. So we all kind of lived over there. We start buying houses in that area. When we, you know, you start stepping up, buying houses and doing what you do. we always, we're always in that area. But the other thing that was amazing too, is, you know, you walk into the farm, man, and just the people that sat around the floor, you know, he's like, oh man, Jack Nixon's over here. This guy, cause oh man, I watched that movie. So you, you got to get over that at first, because all this stuff you grew up with, Watching all those guys and send it to form the ladies, you'd like, "Oh man!" And then we turned out to be what we turned out to be basketball wise. So it made for a great marriage and a whole lot of you know mutual uh, benefits, you know, interest mutual interest education. So it all kind of came together. One of
0: one of the things, man, I've always admired about you is your just how easily you move around socially from various circles, and you know, at a at a, at a Nixon allen party at at your house there could be any number of famous people non famous people but norm you just always moved really effortlessly and you know i know for myself i learned a lot of my social skills from my dad from observing my dad at the restaurant but you know i'm curious man where did you you know in moving around you know through restaurants and the places that you hung out and, and when you first got to la what, what, how did you get, I know how you had your, I understand how you got your confidence on the court, but where did that confidence come for you off the court? I think there were,
1: um, a couple of maybe transformative things that um, just happened in my in my life. I mean, when I when when I got with the Lakers, I had gotten out of college, and then you get out of college and you realize how much you don't know. <laughs> so I, I just went on a history thing. I read a lot of stuff about African American history. I started reading everybody's autobiographies. I started reading everything about you know first I you know Laron Bennett's book, the history of African American Then after I did that, I said, let me just read about you know American history. So I started reading everybody's autobiographies. You know, I met. Ms. Shabazz's father's book, which was really eye-opening because he was a guy that wasn't formally educated, but could debate with Harvard professors or anybody in the world, and it was only because he read. And then his experiences that came with that. So another thing that inspired me, so I read Martin Martin Luther King's book, Frederick Douglass' book, Harry Tubman's book, History of the United States, the History of this, the History of the South. And then playing with guys like Kareem Jamal, guys that read a lot. Our Lakers team was a team that really read a lot. So guys were giving me books jim Jones gave me as a man think it when i was like 22 years old i read those books so just from that perspective you started learning that you know deb and i've been married a long time so here is entertainment coming from a classic background with me you know sports background but a guy that was with the kareems and the Lou Adlers and Jack Nickersons, who on their other side collected art, who read, who did stuff. That thing. And so Debbie and I, because we were entertainment and sports, so when we had dinners, we always had a, you know, you could, like you say, you come to my house, you know, Kareem, want to know about restaurants, you want to talk to Kareem. Uh, you don't know John McClain. He's in the music business, but quietly done amazing thing. He was my crazy friend, James. They love to get at the piano and sing, they can play anything. So we always, had little small parties, dinner parties, where we mixed different groups of people and in those environments, man, you know, you just learn so much about everything. I mean, look at the history in that room. You know, even talking to your dad, you know, I used to go to the cellar, you know, having a club in New York in the 60s, 70s, you know, there's a certain mentality, certain street knowledge, certain things, you know, there's a certain wisdom, but I've never been afraid to learn. And I came from the projects and segregation. So, it doesn't scare me to go be around 1000 black people with rollers and, and rags on because those are my cousins and my uncles and all my people. So I'm comfortable in that environment. You know, I'm not going to do nothing stupid, and, but but I'm comfortable. And then because of what I did sports wise and being with Debbie's and, you know, the Academy Award parties and Joy, you talk about all that. But, you know, with the people that come to those parties, you know, those are things I did. So I'm comfortable with them, but I'm also comfortable with the environment. So as a result of just those experiences and being willing to always learn, you know, I'm always ready to learn. I love traveling. You know, Debbie's mother said, you know, uh, read about a place before you go there. So at a young age, whenever I traveled somewhere, I would read books about the place. So when I landed, I knew a little bit about the history, the culture, the religions. So it made a place more interesting to me. So when you can go into a place and you've got 20 tourist places you want to see, then You know, you hang out at the restaurants, you do that, but you go to the museums, you go to history, you go to this neighborhood. You know, I went to Spain. I went in there with the gypsies, you know, but I took a little money, had a little wine with them because I wanted to see them flamenco. So I gave the little girls money. So I sat in there with the gypsies and the Spanish juice was like this. I'm in there with those gypsies drinking wine, man, and the girls doing flamenco for me because I walked in there with respect for their spot. I didn't go in there with like, oh, this dirty place. Hey, man, I want to see somebody do some Fomico. Give me some wine. Here, give me this it. You know, before I knew it, they took the drums out, man. They started singing. Those little girls jumped out there. So it was amazing. So I've always been, and I think that's a part of my personality that I've always just kind of like kept into myself, but it's a reason I can kind of move between, uh, uh, different groups of people. Long answer for it, but. No, man, that's, that, you know,
0: for, for anybody listening that, you know, is curious as to how someone like a Norm Nixon becomes someone who's comfortable in the world and comfortable in his skin, you know, that didn't just happen by accident. And, I learned a lot by being around you and, and knowing some of the things that you've exposed yourself to. You know, one of the things that I wanted to touch on too, and you, you kind of just brought it up. You know, I remember back in the eighties when you were, when you were playing that, you know, you would, you would make a point of coming by the cellar that the cellar was my dad's restaurant on the upper west side of Manhattan. And, uh, you know, our clientele was almost exclusively black and during the 15 years that he owned it. And so Norm would occasionally show up there, and and you know we'd have a nice little time together. But then he also would would hang out at a place that I was shocked he would know about called Perks up in Harlem. Uh-huh. And I was like, <laughs> "Have you Perks?" Norm, Norm, Nixon know about Perks, a little <laughs> coffee shop, a little restaurant that only locals knew about. But you know, back then, Norm, to your point earlier, you know, there was no internet, man. So, you know, you had to have found a way to know where to go when you hit various places, various cities and towns. How, how did you guys find your way around to the various restaurants, black owned spots and, and all of those things in, in the cities that you traveled to?
1: Well, in, in, in a lot of cases, you know, you're going to always know someone. You're going to have a family member there, or a friend there or a guy that you're playing with that was from there. You know, say, hey, man, let me take you down to this spot. You know, like uh, with our Laker team, whenever we went to Atlanta, you know, my mother would cook. Uh we went to Michigan's uh Magic's mom would bring food down to the hotel. So you experience stuff but through the guys you're playing with, then you meet people and and you'll go check out cause you want to go get some good food. Sometimes you want to with well, some different foods like, man, I want to sell them food or you get Brad, I want to go get my hair cut. I don't want to go to a place so you got different kind of hair. So I can't go to no place where they want to wash my hair and get some scissors. <laughs> man, I got to go to one of those places that have that candy stripe outside. So whenever I got to a city, I found one of those cause they know how to cut my hair. I don't have to say nothing. Man, give me a shot right here, boom, boom. And usually that connects you to everything in the city, the barbershop. I tell mm-hmm. people, the barbershop was our country club, man. You go hear about everything. Hey man, I need to get this out, man. Just go around the corner, man. You know something wrong with my car? Man, go down here, man. You know, man, I need that. So you know for us, you know, that was such a big part of our culture, Brad. Mm-hmm. Such a big now, and I'll remind you this, you remember when I we did the thing called Black Barbershop, where we went around to the black barbershops so and we had all the all the cats. Uh, get tested for hypertension, you know, and all this. And, you know, we did it all around the country because the barbershop is where everybody goes.
0: So, Norm, when you um, when you first started uh, playing with the Lakers in L.A., that was in 77, correct? Yeah. 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 So give me a give me a little taste of some of the spots that were that were happening back then. Was this was the the John T's candy store, Carlos and Charles, yeah. the form some yeah. of those spots?
1: Yeah, those. Yeah. We went to Carlos and Charlie's. We went to the Candace store, you know, down in the neighborhood. to go hear music. I always went to Total Experience and all those places. Like I, go to, I used to go down there and hear the Dale Fund. <laughs> so, you know, I still had all that in me, but I want to go hear the Dale. I went on New Year's Day with Debbie. I said, come on, let's go. I'm taking you somewhere. We went down and listened to the Dale Funnies, man. <laughs> so those were the black places. But I also, like you say, I, I knew a couple of guys. So I always, I, could, I had access to the Daisy. That's the place. Uh, it was a little place on Rodeo. And uh, there was another private place I used to go to because I was a good friend of Sam Nassie. Like you said, he got it on the team. He took me to a couple of places.
0: And um, I know that uh, someone that, you know, ended up becoming a, a business partner, actually, uh, and went in business with us in in Georgia, Lou Adler. Lou is a famous, uh, just an iconic L.A. guy. Uh, Beetle produced the, the Beatles, Mamas and the Papas owns the Rainbow Whiskey Roxy on Sunset. Just kind mm-hmm. of. A, just an iconic LA LA figure, Norman. He became you guys became friends. How, how did that How did that relationship happen, Norman? What What impact, if any, did Lou have on the way you kind of moved around town and thought about your endeavors, your business endeavors? And
1: well, a big impact. I told him one time, uh, probably two years, three years ago, uh, somebody kind of asked me a question like, "Who was a guy that kind of influenced you a, a lot when you was out there?" And When I was thinking about it. Who was it business-wise that so and it was Lou. So I called him. I said, now Lou, don't get all emotional me and cry, man. And I said, somebody asked me, and when I thought about it, it was him. Now I met Lou because I used to do basketball camps all, all in the summertimes all the time. And uh during those killings in uh, Atlanta, because I'm being from Georgia, I said, you know, I'm gonna raise money, I'm gonna bring a lot of kids from Atlanta and from my home city of Macon to my basketball camp. So I was raising money to do that because all the murders and this stuff was happening. And a guy, one guy wrote a check for it. And I'm like, man, who just paid for these kids? You know, I was bringing like 40 kids. I was like, man, who just paid for all these airfares and hotels? And so they told me a guy's name and I thought it was another person. Then it ended up being Lou because he never talked about it. It was Lou who paid for it. And so he always sat on the court uh, next to Jack. And I started kind of, you know, I went and I said, Damn, Lou, I was like, Man, thank you. Blah, 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 blah. We talked a little bit. And then I really started paying attention to who he was. You know, watch, you know how we are, Brad, you watch him dress. He was clean all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay. He had some socks on. Like, <laughs> socks and shoes and little hats. So I'm like, oh, this guy is cool. Then, you know, I went to his crib. I'm like, uh, so I'll, i I'll I, I back up one of the funniest things that happened to me with Lou. So, you know, I go out to the house by the beach, you know, one of the most beautiful houses I've ever seen with art all over it, art everywhere. Through him, I met Jack, Art Everywhere. But I was sitting out by his swimming pool, and we were talking, man. And he he, he turned something on, and then the music started coming out of the rocks. You know, I grew up in an area where you have a, a, a stereo system sitting over there, and then the court go across the floor. You know, you got to put some carpet so people don't trip you know, and stuff like that. So I was sitting out there, and the music was coming out of the rocks, man. This could have been 79, nine I'm like, man, what's blue? How did you do that? He was like, no, Norm, you just have to have somebody come in. And wire your house like they did the phones. Cause if you remember my first house, Brad, you know, I used to have music all out in the bag by the pool and stuff. He said, You wired and you just put the system in one spot. Cause I, you know, I had stereo sitting over here, speak over there. (laughs) I said, Oh, okay. (laughs) So that was a funny thing. But that that was one of the first things. Then you know, he took me to my first fight in Vegas. I went ringside, sat with him and Jack to a fight. He's like, no, I'm going to go to the fight. Blah, 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 blah. meet me here. And I'm not getting too into details, but yeah, meet me here, we'll go. And I was like, okay, I went, I sat ringside. Jack gave me his seat. You know, with Jack, they just put a chair up there. You know, I'm at the apron Mm -hmm. of fights. But just watching him handle business, because you look up, Marvin Gaye was recorded at the Roxy. that Marvin Gaye live album, just live from the Roxy, Mamas and the Papas," Rocky Horror Show. Those Cheech and Chong movies, those Up and Smoke Mm -hmm. movies, Mm -hmm. you know, produce all of those things, you know, wrote uh, the song with Sam Cooke, don't know much about history, you know, with a co-write on that song, Roommates, you know, and it's, uh, so just was a smart, breed and quiet, and quiet about it. But the same thing, well-read, art, hand of business, boom, you know, down the list, you check off all that, and it just, like you say, been a cool friend of mine forever. I still go walk with him now, you know.
0: I can totally see that uh that influence i know you when we were planning georgia you took me over to his house and just the the crystal lamps and the art and just the the, his presence his vibe was just like unlike anybody i had ever been around i I can certainly see his influence
1: And, and and i'll say this to uh uh mrs shabazz i know she's listening and uh I asked him one time, I said, Lou, I was saying, because, you know, Lou lived around a long time. So he was around everybody. Lou moved through a lot of different circles as well. I said, what was uh, Malcolm's biggest effect on black people from your perspective? He said, you know, he said, No, I was in, um, you know, I was in the studio with all these guys. And she said, when he came, when he came out and when he was talking, instead of those guys being slumped over, they started standing up Putting their chest out. I said, Really? He said, Yeah, that was what I saw. I said, Okay, that's interesting. That's interesting coming to somebody who lived the era. That was white, that was Jewish, that was in the studios, that was doing stuff. And that was um, his thing. He said he could see. that he was good. because so those guys start standing up, speaking up for themselves a little bit. So he was the conscience and the uh, voice of a lot of those guys that, that had been being for a long time. So the impact was that. And so I found that to be very interesting. That is really
0: interesting, man. And, yeah. you know, you mentioned my uh, mom rereading the autobiography uh, for which uh, Ambassador Shabazz uh, wrote the foreword uh, in the in the new edition. And uh, it's an incredible foreword. Um, I want to segue here, uh, Norm, because we, you and I have, uh, and again, this is a, a restaurant hospitality podcast. Oh, okay. Remember, I wanted to lay okay. kind of <laughs> something, because your life is just so fascinating, man. And, you know, the, the, the communities that you and Debbie brought together from the sports world and the entertainment world, and the fact that you that you made it inclusive, you know, to guys like me who, you know, pull out chairs for a living um, is, you know, just really, really unique. And so we got together again in New York and kind of got reacquainted. And and I'd always fantasized about you know, just the warm weather of California. And you said, hey, man, if you ever get serious, you know, let me know. Come out to L.A., man, we'll do something together. And, you know, my dad had a, a, had a name for that. You know when people make you promises in the in the restaurant at night, he would call that night talk. You know, <laughs> it just didn't never really amounted to anything, but it sounded good at night. But lo and behold, I decided to move to LA in eighty nine, and uh, just had, was ready for some warm weather and and uh, a change of scenery. And uh, I, I reached out to to Norm and uh, some some people, and I had been looking around at some spaces, and we had found a space. That uh was a, a former Japanese restaurant on Sunset Boulevard called the Imperial Gardens. And it was a really cool building, a three-story building, just kind of dilapidated and run down, but really had a lot of potential right next to the iconic Marlborough man sign. And so I went to Norm and I told the man, you know, we, we have this building, and you know, what do you think? And Norm came in and, and took a look at it. And true to his word. Norm stepped in and did not get a lot of fanfare about this at all. And Roxbury is what came of it, but it and um, became a, a tremendously successful club. But Norm, you raised damn near every dollar that we needed for Roxbury from the sources that, that you had accumulated of friends and, and people in different businesses around town. So I just I wanted to touch on that because it's relevant to me today as I see people like LeBron and, and Jay-Z kind of, you know, establishing the fact that uh, they'll they'll go into business with their friends and bring in the people that they grew up with from their neighborhoods into the business with them. But you were way ahead of, of any of that before it was trendy. And I'm just I'm really curious as to what instilled that in you, you know, what would cause someone like you with the access that you had to stuff? to go into business with someone like me, who was not famous, not a celebrity, a new guy in town, a brother, just looking to try to get something off the ground.
1: Well, you know, Brad, like I tell you, one of the things uh, I said when I first got into the NBA, when I had time, you, you you go back and you read and you study. I mean, I was talking to, well, I just said, talking to Denzel uh, today. And the thing we talked about is one of his favorite quote, you have to look behind to go forward. So in looking behind, just really mean educating yourself, understanding who you are, understanding the trials and tribulations of all of us. How do we what can you do kind of to help move balancing this stuff out? And and the best way is like they're all cliches, you know, each one take one. It's cliches, but it's it's really true. So when you do that and you do that, um, when you go back, I think it's almost natural to do that part. Because you want to make sure you help some cats get up and do things. You know, I wanted a restaurant. It was going to be fun to do. And, and that's the reason in itself. But then I would tell you something funny about the concept. You know, when we all talked about that, I tried to figure out a concept. You remember I told you about Lou, Nell, who owns Nell in New York, was in the Rocky Horror Show. So I used to go to Nails. And if you remember correctly, when you walked in the Nell's, the right side was a uh, jazz bar. The other side was a restaurant and the club was downstairs. So when we talked about concept, remember we settled on walking into Roxbury. Blues was on the one side, restaurant on the second floor, club on the third floor. I thought that was the coldest concept. So (laughs) so,
0: you're right. And I I remember that day, man, because you and I walked that space and we we hadn't really established yet what was going to go where. Yeah. And you referenced Nels, which was one of my go to spots in New York, And it made perfect sense. You said dance plus third floor, restaurant second floor. We do the live music spot on the first floor.
1: Private room that you could get to in the front. Mm -hmm. You know, where guys could... Could walk in, you know. So, so the concept, but but that came from that brat, you know. Again, growing up in the south and growing up really being segregated. So, I think when you come down there, you're a little more sensitive to certain things, you know. Your radar and is up. Like, now, let me help, let me help these cats. I mean, I'm not saying you don't do business with everybody, but if you have an opportunity where you can, and in my position, it wasn't even about educating nobody and stuff, but where you can help somebody. And at this stage in life, like if you can help educate some guys about how to move through, how to handle your business, how to do stuff, you know, you you should be willing to do it. And I mean, you've turned a lot of young chefs on and like the young guy that has your restaurant now. So you have to do those things. And so it came from that, Brad. And I knew guys wanted a place to hang out because uh, in those days you can say you can spend your money anywhere, but you want to spend your money where you get service. So I know a lot of guys that didn't get service in certain places like now. Let's make sure we have a spot where these guys can get service because now the African-American community has money just like everybody else. So if people can go to a place and they can get service regardless you a step ahead
0: of the game. Yeah, you know, and and traditionally, Norm raising money for restaurants and clubs through institutions is just not, you know, you can't yeah. even sit at a banker's desk and ask for a loan for for that. But you know, in a in a kind of by default way, you know, we established a, a real marketing precedence too because the the people that you handpicked. That became investors in Roxbury and then ultimately Georgia. Georgia was a restaurant that Norm and I opened, um, in 93 following Roxbury on, uh, on Melrose Avenue when Melrose was, was really fashionable and right across the Spikes joint. Uh, we decided we wanted, we wanted a Southern restaurant, an upscale Southern restaurant for, you know, basically what Norman just said, an extension of a place for our friends. But, Norm, it was, it was really going back to Roxbury and then to Georgia, it was the hand picked people that you highlighted in different industries. Michael Littman, for instance, you know, in the, out of the music business, the first party that we had at Roxbury was a party for Bernie Taupin that Elton John came to and all of Hollywood <laughs> showed up. And that basically set us up with Roxbury.
1: Well, and total recall. The, the thing about those guys, you know, Michael managed, uh, George Michaels too, you know. So again, by being in the music, it was like you pick a group of people that have to entertain business wise and you service them, you know, because they could bring parties, you know, some of the other guys, Brad, I, you know, I used to syndicate real estate. Some, some guys had made some money with me in different deals. So they were comfortable, uh, coming into business with me.
0: Yeah, you definitely, people, people trusted you, man. No question about it. And you have a, you know, you have a certain financial awareness that I think, um, you know, as I've spent some time, uh, in business, I've come to really appreciate that I married a CPA and I wish that I'd had, uh, the level of financial discipline that, that she's brought to my life, but different story. So we go, so Roxbury at the time, Norm, if you, if you remember back in the, you know, we opened in '89, early '90s. It was an interesting time for for Black Hollywood, and I would I would venture to say, with you know, Arsenio on the air, Debbie had a different world on the air. Will had Fresh Prince. Uh, Spike was was gearing up to do Malcolm. I, I remember D coming in with a X Cat hat on and girls walking up to him. What what does that mean? You know, it was He wasn't even. He was he was famous then, but obviously he's he's become even more famous since then. You know, at that at that time there was there was an emergence of of energy around Black Hollywood. And I thought Roxbury was for for its time probably the most integrated room in LA. Would would you agree with that? And and how do you remember the the emergence of Black Hollywood in in back in those in that in, during that period?
1: Uh you're probably right, Brad. It probably was one of the most diverse uh, groups. And again, diverse as far as like uh, industry, racially, socially. So it it was that spot. And I think it had a lot to do with, like you say, all the investors that came aboard. And then a lot of the things we did pre-opening. We had probably, like you say, Bernie's party. We had a total recall party. We had a we had a, uh, another partner from one of the uh, movies. So when we opened, we had to keep doubling the staff. Black Hollywood was emerging that time, but those guys didn't have a place where they could be serviced. <laughs> so, so they needed a spot. You know, you you laugh to it. Always say Las Vegas was the best place in the world. It's like playing to people's egos, man. So if you give a cat a spot, he can come to the door and do this, and he can walk in and get a table in the private room. Come on, man. That was like. A uh, deal changing, life changing uh perception changing, <laughs> and those guys deserved it, and I said they didn't deserve it, you know they needed to have a spot where they got treated uh right too. so mm-hmm. we created that for everybody. That's why the crowd was diverse, so all the major stars actors always came to the place if that's in fact what we did, and it wasn't always them. it was people you're familiar with clubs just had a way you know, you, you'll get to Georgia, but you know, sometimes you have to go tell our friends, come on, man, you can't come sit at the table for four hours and buy a drink, you got to go.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so so on, on Georgia, Norm, we opened up Georgia, you know, on the heels of Rodney King and, and the 90s were a very, you know, tumultuous time in LA from, from the Rodney King thing to the 94 earthquake to the OJ trial, and then subsequently yep. we had You know, Johnny had called and wanted to have the the victory party for the defense team after the verdict was announced at Georgia, which we ended up having because they had been customers of ours the entire time. You know, what, what, what do you remember most? What would you say, you know, stands out for you in terms of Georgia and and the the fondest memories that, that you have of that experience?
1: Well, I, I will continue to laugh about that one because we was there that they called. It was like, it quit it. He called us. We're on our way. Let me start getting bomb threats. I was talking I about that about a week or two ago. Mm-hmm. But if I if I think about the memory, Brad, it's just, um, again, you can always laugh about the diversity. You could probably speak to this better than me, the different groups that came in. I think one of the creators of a dynasty or something, she used to come in Wednesday nights. It was older Jewish lady. She'd come in with about 10 of her girlfriends, because we were close to a temple. They used to walk in there. They had dinner every week. You remember Jeffrey Kassenberg? Those guys had their night there. And, you know, so everybody came through that place. So I think that was one of the things I always think about. Like you say, it was it was really unique in that sense. And then we probably had some of the best parties. I mean, we had parties when Giselle was nominated. I think Bob Johnson had a party there when he was nominated. So, again, it was kind of the go-to place, in particular for the African-American community, when there was like... A big thing, and we got great coverage. We were voted the best, uh, Oscar party two or three times. That's right. That's right. A lot of that had to do with
0: that. We got best restaurant. Best restaurant. Bon appetit. Best restaurant. Yeah.
1: You know, and and, and Debbie was choreographing the Academy Awards, and so all her dancers came, which means all the guys followed all the dancers to our party. They went to have their dinner. Right after the Academy was and they came to Georgia. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, yeah.
1: So we had a great party. So that 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 stood out, Brad.
0: Yeah. And uh, so um as I as I start to wind down here, Norm, you know, the, the restaurant industry, man, has been been in free fall this past year with the pandemic and and all of that. Do you miss going out? Do you miss do you miss being able to rub elbows with people in public?
1: We laughed at the beginning of the show. It it didn't change my life that much but one of the things I did enjoy doing was going to have dinner and going to different restaurants to eat um, I did do that you know, you know, we're clubs, no more, nothing like that. But being able to go and a lot of times to go sit at the bar and restaurants and have dinner and have a drink or something and leave. So I, I do miss that.
0: Do you think restaurants miss, are going to make a full comeback, Norm? Do you think people are going to be apprehensive about being in crowded rooms? The
1: world, the the whole world is on reset, Brad. Every every the way we do business, you know, doing business at home versus going to the office. Some companies going to like not having all that overhead, so everything's going to change. So I think restaurants have changed. I think it's going to take a year, year and a half, two years before it gets back to normal. Everybody will be vaccinated. Hopefully this thing will be gone. So then I think it, it, it'll get better. But what this reset has done, you know, only the strongest are going to survive through this period of time because there's so many restaurants that have closed. You know, there are a couple that are staying over open that are doing deliveries and they're doing OK, but it's not the same. So if they can really get through this next period of time. I think it'd be okay, but it'll be back to norm in a couple of years, uh, as we used to see normal.
0: I hope so. So, lastly, Norm, I know um, Italy has been a sweet spot for you and Debbie. You guys vacation there often. You you spend time in Positano. How is it as a as a black man when you when you go abroad? I mean you obviously as a celebrity, Debbie as a celebrity, there's a certain, you know, advance that you guys have uh in terms of people in some cases recognizing you, but maybe not everywhere. But is there is there any piece of wisdom that you want to drop on us about how to move around the globe as a black man and, and you know how you do that so successfully and so well?
1: Well, oh, you know, it- Hey, you know, these are different times. I mean, I don't travel back there like I used to. I mean, the first time I started traveling to Europe with Debbie, you know, in the 80s, early 80s or something, I used to give her all the luggage and let her go through customs in the countries. Then I'll come in. With no bag because i got tired of them stopping me going through all of my stuff so i just walk up i let debbie go through to help her through she gets out in the car then i walk up there with one bag and my passport and go i don't have nothing because i got tired of them opening every one of my bags <laughs> so that was one of the early experiences move forward a little bit debbie and i started traveling i think for some award show fame was probably one of the biggest shows in the world it was a big international hit so when you go to Italy and France and Sweden, fame was the number one show in those countries, one of the number top shows. So they recognized her. Then eventually I went and played in Italy. So after I played in Italy and you know with Debbie, so when we moved around Italy, it was it was pretty comfortable. And we made good friends in Italy. So we went back there a lot. I tell you the piece of advice, you say a piece of advice, my mother in law told me this, always read about a place before you travel to it. Go grab your book, read about it understand a little bit about the history, the culture, the museums, the art. So when you land, you already know a little bit about the place, you know, some places you might want to see, you might not want to see, you know, in addition to the restaurant. So I say as you move around and I would always put a tape in my car just so wherever I landed, I could say good morning, how are you? How do you, you know, how do I get here? And then people will be a little more apt to, to, to help you. If you try to say some things, they might laugh at you. Like, okay. But they'll tell you, but when you go there and think everybody's supposed to speak English. So I say, if you're going to a place, Put your tape in your car for like a week so you can at least go in there and say, hey, good morning. How are you? Good morning. You know, nice to see you. If you if you can. And that in itself will probably make your your trip a lot better. Well, what I think, you know, in in
0: summarizing here, Norm, I think one of the things that I always admired about you was, you know, was your humility and you know, the, the, and you just kind of laid it out that, you know, you don't, you don't, you go to a place, you know, even with your eyes open and, and you take the time to kind of learn a little bit about a a place before, before you go, you know, it wouldn't surprise anyone to know that you were the class president of your senior, senior (laughs) high school and you finished 17th out of 700 graduating seniors. But, you know, I say all that, you Norm, know, just to say that you know you've been extremely influential in my life, man, and very, very generous both you and Debbie uh, towards me over the years, and you really helped to establish me on my path. You know, as a as a restaurant tour and entrepreneur, and uh, I just I just really want to say thank you, man. I, I you know I really appreciate it. You've been very significant um. to me. I'm,
1: I mean, I mean, do like I, I, I told Lou, don't cry, Lou, when I tell you this. I ain't gonna cry, Brad, but I'm humble. <laughs> Thank you, man. Thank you. Oh, Amen.
0: Thank you, Norm, for your time with us today. So we're gonna to turn to our segment called How We Move Around the World and Back with Ambassador Shabazz.
2: Hello. Ambassador,
0: what's happening?
2: <laughs> I'm here in Bluegrass City. They call it Bluegrass City. Oh No, no L. No L. Right. Louisville. 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 <laughs> All
0: right. Okay. Well, welcome. And uh, so glad that you're going to be able to join me each week. Um, why don't you give us a little flavor as to what you're going to inform us about, the kind of things that we can look forward to? in upcoming shows and uh enlighten us a little bit. We're we're really happy that you're that you're joining us here.
2: You know, a lot of the times we would talk over the years about paradigm shifts. You know, what's next, what's new, uh who's the customer, and here we are again. But differently, the whole world is in a paradigm shift, you know, so not only can you not go out to a restaurant, people have their rhythms are thrown off. And so we want to talk about how to reboot, how to redefine life. Forge new alliances and signatures, and not just to generate a dollar, but to hold on to that passion and to fellowship. And so, you know, me, I've lived on the road. I grew up on the road. Um, I, in my own house, we had food that w- we were kosher, so we had to select certain foods. We didn't have white sugars. We didn't have um, white bread. I had cornbread was different. My soul food was variable. It came from the different parts of my own personal cultures that people don't generally know about. The visitors that my father and mother would have over became our cuisine. The remedies for wellness were not at a pharmacy. So it was interesting during this whole time this whole year if only in March we knew it would have been 9 10 months we could have prepared differently but at the time in the anxiety it was how do we find ourselves where do we how do we fellowship i think that's what most people missed and so we'll on this show around the world and back is intentional is discussing tourism health and wellness cultural traditions for me that's important you know the united nations has 100 93 member countries, but we always talk about the ra- the world being over there somewhere. Right here around us are foods and and experiences um, over your left and right shoulder. So we don't need a passport. We don't need to get on a p- plane right now. I find myself while I'm here in Louisville, Kentucky, beyond the sweet tea and the hot brown, going to some of the international restaurants for takeout. You know, whether it's a Gambian. A restaurant for a family to make sure that they stay open or an, a Middle Eastern one so that I can get great hummus or Or Tajin, I crave those flavors and the the savory and the stories and the preparations of food, and also enabling people to know that they're not gonna be stranded, that their passion or their dream um business, which is usually a family history, right? It's not out of the blue that they're sharing these things, and so you get to have the narratives and and everything, so being able to share that with you week to week is exciting. I have to say that in preparation for this, I must have had 40 conversations in the last couple of weeks because my nature is one that when I start a conversation, there are three different arteries there. And you're learning about someone in the restaurant business or the culinary or the hotel, and you start to realize that everybody's rebooting. And so we start now rubricsing how we're going to make new things happen. And it's been absolutely exciting. And I think through the corner table in this process, we're going to realize and affirm for some people who think their idea might be a little outlandish. And you get to say, no, we heard it on the corner table, or we heard um, how we move, talk about it, and, and perhaps maybe enable people to feel a little bit more confidence about how they proceed. So it's not just how I move or how you move, but how do we move together? Right. And the the ecosystem of Congress, of how we come together, I mean, the pandemic affects everybody around the world. Um, Global warming is affecting everybody around the world. Even civil unrest is affecting everybody around the world. So we can't have a them and us attitude. We have to really work with that. We and right around you is an answer. You know, there's a signature.
0: Well, yeah, you know, i in, in listening to you lay that out, I'm so excited because I, I know and have spent a lot of time with you. We've traveled together. We've, we've taken some really amazing trips. Belize comes to mind and some of the phenomenal, uh, places that, that you took us to in Belize, from Mayan chocolate to Garifuna and the lovely stays that we would have at, at Black Orchid with Doug Thompson and some of the talks that we would have there. But I'm really happy to share you with our, our listening audience, because I know you've been, you know, a, a little bit, we'll say, undercover. You don't okay. you, you don't necessarily broadcast your presence. No. But one of the things I've always admired about you, Ambassador, is the way that people respond to you because of how you respond to them. And I'm hoping that in the segment, some of that quality that you have in your ability to relate to people and have them relate back to you from the ticket counter at American Airlines to the gentleman who owns the Mine chocolate a little village in in Belize. I see how people respond to you. So I'm not surprised that 40 people have responded to you since you first brought up the idea of of, your participation here, but really, really, really excited to have you.
2: Well, thanks for saying that and enables me to share it as well. You know, Usually I'm taking people on the road with me. So we curate these delegations, like cultural immersions, uh, for about nine days. But of course, that has been at a halt. And the questions are, how do we do that virtually? Who are we talking to? Whom? With whom are we sharing? And how do we proceed? So for instance, I spoke to a senator from Senegal last week, whom I've known for about a year, and he's now manages the tourism for the government. And the conversation that he shared was that There's no more international tourism, but they're now identifying assets within their country and sharing it with their citizens. Same thing with the new chairman of the Grenada Tourism Board, is that the Caribbean is its own bubble. The Spice Island. The Spice Island. And that's where my (laughs) grandmother's from. (laughs) you know. But then he also said to me that we're learning how to do the bubble. How do we engage people from the nation, from our region, to be a part of what we generally save for the outside tourists. So a lot is happening now, right, in those synergies. And what's the conversation? So I always asked them, what do you need? What's next? What would move the pendulum? How can we all be a part of that? And it's exciting for me, as you can, you know, tell. You know, I'm a walk talking fast. And then it's just the arteries. You know, you have food with a mission. And we've now heard or seen the announcement of Colin Kaepernick's new ice cream with Ben and Jerry's. And he's Vegan and it's a, it's a non-dairy ice cream called Change the World, W-H-I-R-L-E-D. And it's in support of his, um, Know Your Rights Camp, which has a mission. It's a hundred percent. You know, you have Lisa Dyson who has something. She's a food scientist. Um, and it's an, a meatless meat and it's called air protein. And I was, I'm still trying to understand the science of it, but this, it's almost like air based agriculture you know, and I don't know enough about the molecules and the elements, but that's what they're bringing to the fore, which means then you'll have a bounty of food in terms of food justice or the parodies. But I started to ask her about what does that mean in terms of fine dining so that there's a business component as well as a social impact one? What does that mean? How do you prepare that? Or Isaiah Thomas who most people know as an as a as an athlete, but he has the proprietary rights and is the owner of a long generational vineyard and champagne company out of France called Sherlin French wine, French champagne, and it's low sugar. He's made it or got the ingredients to a place where it's digestible and it's helpful for the system and not disruptive for the system. So you have different things like that. Their are young sisters in um, Tennessee is where they are, Memphis, Tennessee. They were doing city tasting tours. Well, we can't do that anymore. So they now do these city tasting boxes where it's now deliverable, packable, no different than any kind of Harry and David or whatever. But they're doing it specifically, as they said, to keep the spirit alive through the pandemic. So what people are figuring out after some months of anguish is how to merge their passion work with purpose. And we want to make sure they also have a revenue stream so that we have to make sure that we're supporting those industries or businesses along the broad range of hospitality.
0: Well, it, it starts, as as you know, with bringing some awareness to, you know, all of the cool things that are happening and, and things that, that our folks are up to. So, with that, you know, I just want to once again say thank you for for your willingness to join me on on Corner Table Talk. And yes. every week, I'm sure our, our listeners are really going to look forward to uh, Ambassador Shababs Thank,
2: thank you. you very much.
0: Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson, coordinating producer Lauren Turner, theme music Life Goes On by Bryce Vine, executive producers Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a Say It Loud Network production.